Oh, yeah, nice. Um, well, my name's Maddie. Keen to dig into the Bible with you. We're going to read Job 19 to start off with. So, flick over there with me. All right, Job 19. Then Job replied, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my ways so that I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honour and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build up a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. My guests and my female servants count me a foreigner. They look upon me as a stranger. I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my in- intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead, or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. If you say how we will hound him, since the root of the trouble lies in him, you should fear the sword yourselves, for wrath will, will bring punishment by the sword, and then you will know that there is judgment. We're also going to flick over to Romans 3. So come there with me. Romans 3, starting at verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, 
to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Thanks, Maddie. Well, great to be with you. My name is Andrew. People call me Hazy. And we are going to be looking at God's Word together. So flick back to Job. Let me tell you a story about a businessman, a very successful man in the city of Chicago. True story, his name was Horatio Spafford. How's that for a name? They don't give names like that anymore. He was living the dream, happily married, beautiful kids. And they were, they were Christians and they were known for their generosity They were active in in fighting against the slave trade. And then tragedy struck. A fire tore through the city, destroying everything they had. Two years later, they set out for a much-needed family holiday. At the last uh, moment, Horatio had to stay back, but he sent his wife and daughters on ahead on the ship. He'd catch up with them in a few days. But one night while out at sea, the ship hit another boat, and sank. His wife Anna survived by clinging to a piece of wreckage, but their four daughters all drowned. Horatio received a horrifying telegraph, or telegram from his wife, the words, saved alone, what shall I do? And he rushed to find a boat to go and be with her, and at some point on that journey he was told by the captain, this is the area. Somewhere down there, that's, that's where your daughters are. Can you imagine the pain? The confusion? God, what are you doing? I trusted you. I thought we were friends. You can hear Job say something similar in that passage Maddie read for us, chapter 19, verses 6 and 7. Then know that God has wronged me. And drawn his net around me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. No answer to my prayer. Though I call for help, there is no justice. Have you felt that? Whether in your pain or someone you love. Or watching a world of extreme poverty and injustice. God, why? Actually, it's deeper than why, isn't it? Job does ask why, chapter 7, verse 20, but in chapter 19, it's far more personal. You see, the reason that we care about why is actually because of what it would mean if there was no good reason. It would mean that God is not good or fair or loving. And just think what that would mean for us, for the world, for the future. How could we have any hope at all in a world where the one in charge isn't fair. In fact, it's even more personal for Job as well because God was his friend. 
chapter 29, verse 4, he remembers a time of intimate friendship with God. Behind the why question is actually the question of what is God really like? Is he good? Is he fair? Is he loving? That's what we're going to consider tonight in the book of Job. And, and so if it's your first time here, really stoked you're here, looking forward to meeting you after the service. I'm aware that these are deep things, for, for many actually quite personal things. Uh, for many, lots of people, it's, it's actually the biggest barrier to faith in God, isn't it? And I completely understand that. In fact, I think we'll see that the Bible understands that. But what we'll see tonight, I trust, is that the Bible has something very powerful to say about it. Now, if you're new to the Bible, it's helpful to know that it's actually a collection of books all bound together. And so our practice as a church is just to pick one and spend a term or so understanding it. And at the moment, we are in one of the most unique books in the whole Bible. It tells the story of Job, a good man who loses everything. Financial ruin, the death of his family, even his health. And to begin with, you can remember back to chapters 1 and 2, his faith seems unshakable. He says, everything I have came from God. I trust him. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Verse 21, may the name of the Lord be praised. And that can happen in the moment of a crisis, can't it? In the kindness of God, adrenaline swells up in your body and faith surges in your heart. And in those first few days, you have such faith, such clarity. But the thing is, grief is a long road. That's why the book of Job doesn't end at chapter 2. That wouldn't be real. After the funeral, when everybody goes home, long after people have stopped asking how you're going, the pain goes on. And so the book of Job goes on as well, into the depths of his grief, chapter 3, and then into the, the exhausting and frustrating and unhelpful words of his friends who seem to mean well, but actually only end up adding to the pain. And so you get chapter after chapter bearing witness to the frustration and the exhaustion and the confusion of suffering. Well, tonight we'll go on a journey with Job. Last week we looked at his friends, tonight Job. And we'll flick around a bit more than normal to watch how Job wrestles with God in all of this. How can God be good and fair when what I'm going through, says Job, is not good or fair? Now, they're big things, so let me ask God to help us. Pray with me. Loving Heavenly Father, Lord Almighty, thank you that the deepest questions that we can think to throw at you are already so honestly here in your word. Please, Lord, tonight lead us by that word to what's true and wise and helpful. Be with those who feel deep pain. May your word be a comfort especially to them and teach us to wrestle with you appropriately as we consider the wrongness of your world, your goodness. Cause faith to rise, humble hope to grow so that we might please you and hold on to you, whatever comes. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, as we journey with Job tonight, here's what we're going to see. The confusion of suffering. Then we'll see three approaches to dealing with that confusion. And finally, we'll see why Job's approach is not perfect, but it's the right one, and the one that leads to hope. 
There we go. So let's, let's get into it. Here we, uh, the first thing we see in Job is, number one, the confusion of suffering. Now, most of the book is an argument between Job and his friends. They're trying to help, but it's not helpful. And so you can see his frustration, Job 19, verse 2 to 6. They say, look, Job, it's very simple. You brought this on yourself. Verse 3, ten times now you've approached me. Shamelessly, you attack me. Verse 4, they say he's gone astray from God. You see, for the friends, it's very simple. God is just. God is fair. He's good. Therefore, Job, your suffering has to be fair. Conclusion, you must have done something real bad. Now, we know from chapter 1 that's not the right answer. Chapter 1, verse 8, God himself gave Job the thumbs up. Now, Job doesn't know that God did that, but Job does know himself, and he knows that their answer can't be right. And so much of the book of Job is Job rebutting their arguments. And as he does that, you can hear his confusion. Look again, Job 19, verse 6. God has wronged me. Verse 7, this isn't fair, there's no justice. He says, it's not my fault. God is the one who's done this, verse 8. He has blocked my way. Verse 9, he has stripped me of honour. Verse 10, he tears me down. There's the confusion of suffering. God is good and fair, but Job knows what he's going through is not. You see, Job himself does know that God is good and powerful and fair. Come to, come to chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 4, Job says, His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Powerful enough, verse 5, to move mountains, to switch off the sun, verse 7, to create and sustain a whole universe, verse 8. There's one thing that everyone in the book of Job does agree on, an immense view of God. It's quite confronting, actually. Pure power, unmatched wisdom, and everyone agrees that we exist on a different plane to the Almighty. And Job knows as well that God is fair. Chapter 9, verse 19 If it's a matter of strength, he is mighty. And if it's a matter of justice, who can challenge him? Job knows that God has a better sense of justice than anyone. The problem is, it just doesn't fit with what's going on in his life. Verse 22, it's all the same. That's why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. Bad things happen to good people, don't they? Job knows that because it's happening to him, verse 21. I am blameless. Now, he doesn't mean by that that he's, he's never sinned. In fact, he knows that he's sinned, like everyone else has. Verse 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 26. You, you can go there later. Chapter 14, verse 16. 13, 26, 14, 16. When he says he's blameless, what he means is he's in the right with God. He lives with integrity. When he sins... He turns away from it and he asks God for forgiveness and he's trying to do God's will. There are no big areas of his life where he's just letting sin grow. And so Job says it doesn't make sense. In fact, flick forward to chapter 12, verse 4. I've become a laughingstock to my friends. Though I called on God and he answered in the past, a mere laughingstock, though righteous and blameless. Verse 6 The tents of marauders, robbers, 
the tents of marauders are undisturbed. Those who do provoke God, the wicked, they're secure. Those God has in his hand. Isn't that true? The worst in this life very often have wonderful lives. I heard this morning that Stalin and Mao, some of the most evil dictators in the history of the world, killed 100 million people, died peacefully in their sleep of old age. While many of those who live the best lives suffer the most, it's not fair. There's the confusion of suffering. On the one hand, God is good, I know that, I know he's fair. But this thing that's happening, it's not good, it's not fair. And so as you read Job's speeches, you find that he swirls around. At one moment, he seems to have confidence, doubt the next, anger, frustration, hurt and confusion. It's like he's in a pinball machine, just bouncing off the things that he knows, these truths that he can't work out how to pull together. Chapter 10, verse 8, didn't you make me God? Surely you care. Chapter 10, verse 12, you gave me life and showed me kindness. But chapter 10, verse 17, it seems like now you're angry at me and I don't know why. Have you ever experienced that, the confusion of suffering? I know God is good and fair, but I just can't, I just can't give the Sunday school answer right now because this thing that's happening to me isn't good, it's not fair and I don't know why. What do you do with that? Let me suggest there are three approaches you could take. Number one, you could deny that there's a good and fair God. There's the number one reason, isn't it, that people do turn away from God. With all the pain, I just can't believe in a God, at least not a good one. Some people even put it into an argument. Point one, if God is powerful, then he can stop all the pain. Point two, if God is good, well, he'd want to. And so, either he's not powerful or he's not good, or maybe he's not real at all. That's a very powerful argument, isn't it? Because it taps into things that we know are true. Now, I actually think there's a big hole in it, and we'll come to that later. But for now, what I want to point out is what it would mean if that is true. It solves the conclusion. Sorry, it solves the confusion that you feel if you deny God. It solves the confusion but you lose everything in the process. Let me explain what I mean. If there's no God, we lose the ability to call things not good, evil, not fair. You see, if there is no God, then what's left? Just a universe, just just atoms. You and a banana and a rock are ultimately the same. Just protons, electrons, neutrons, all just arranged in a different way. No one cares what happens to a rock. Why should we care what happens to you? Now, don't take my word for it. Listen to the words of a famous atheist, someone who doesn't believe in God, a scientist, Richard Dawkins. And Richard Dawkins has spent much of his life arguing against the existence of God. He wrote in this book, In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, And you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing 
but pitiless indifference. You see, the reason that there is right and wrong in the world is because there's a moral God who designed it a certain way. It's not just Adam's. There is a judge, a lawgiver. There is a way that it was supposed to be. But if you get rid of God, all that's left is just Adam's. There's no such thing as injustice. It's just pitiless indifference. You see people mistreated and you think, that's wrong. But then you say to yourself, oh, hang on a second, no, it's not. There's no such thing as wrong. That's just a story we tell ourselves to make society work better, to make ourselves feel better. Do you see what happens if you deny God? You actually lose something that deep down you know is true. Some things are wrong. Not only that, but you lose someone to be angry with. There's no God to complain to. We're just alone in empty space. And I think deep down we know that one's not right either. C.S. Lewis, a Christian writer, uh, said that before he believed in God, I was at that time living like many atheists in a world of contradictions. I maintained that God did not exist. I was also very angry with God for not existing. You know, there's um, research on this actually. Uh, that's found that people who say they don't believe in God report feeling more anger towards God than people who do believe in God. Now, that makes a lot of sense, I think, actually. But how can you be angry at someone you don't believe in? I've stopped being angry at Santa. I don't mean to make light of it, but it, it does suggest that just like C.S. Lewis is alluding to here, even the unbeliever knows deep down that God, is, that God exists. So don't get me wrong, if you deny God, that actually will solve the, the confusion. But the way it does that is by denying the two things that we know are true. We end up denying both that there is anything wrong, there's no such thing as wrong, as well as our deep instinct that surely there's a good God. That's why I'm angry. It's sometimes said that faith means shutting your eyes to the evidence. Now, that's not what the Bible means by faith. But can I suggest that actually it's this approach, denying God, that doesn't take the evidence seriously enough. You see, it closes our eyes to that screaming voice inside of us that says, we know this isn't just Adam's, we know this is wrong, we know this is unfair, which means we know that there's a judge to decide what is fair, a God to hold responsible. And so ultimately, if you take this approach, what you lose is hope that it will ever get better because there's no saviour out there. There's There's just us. And we as often make a mess of things as we fix them. Tonight, we're going to see that there's actually a better approach, one that does hold on to the things that we know and leads to hope. And so, so what's, the, what's the second approach then? The second approach is to explain the pain away. That's what Job's friends do. We saw that earlier, uh, and we've seen it last week as well. Uh, you can look it up in chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. God is fair. We know that. And therefore, you must have sinned or your children must have sinned. There you go, explained. What's the problem? That's the problem, isn't it? it well, first of all, it's cruel. 
but it just doesn't explain it. And so again and again, Job says, no, it's not fair. Look at uh, chapter 13, verse 2. Job says to his friends, what you know, I also know. I'm not stupid. I agree with what you're saying. Yes, God is fair. And yet, verse 15, I don't deserve it. I will surely defend my ways to his face. The problem with explaining it away is that it just doesn't work. It's too, it's too neat. It doesn't take the problem seriously enough. Sometimes we just don't know. And I, I have to confess that I've done this. Sometimes even in sermons. I've given an explanation because I really do think that the Bible has better answers to the questions around suffering than you'll find anywhere else in the world. I've said in, in sermons things like this. The Bible says that God made the world good. But the world is broken because we as humans turned our, our backs on the Creator and debate, uh, disobeyed His teachings. And that disrupted the good order of the world, so now it's a broken world. I've said things like, the forces of evil are real. Like Satan. So that when things happen that are evil, it's not God doing it, it's, it's done by the evil actions of others. Actually, that's a mistake that Job and his friends both make. They never mention Satan, even though we know from chapter 1 that it's actually Satan's hand, not God's hand. And yet that doesn't explain it away, because God still rules over everything, including Satan. These are true things from the Bible that I've, I've said, and I think they do help. I've also said things like this, everything we have is a gift from God. He's got a right to take it away, we can't complain about that. Not only that, actually, we're not the centre of the universe, God is. The greatest injustice in the world is not how we are treated, but actually the way that God is minimised by the world that He made. I've said things like this, What's more than that, we, we've each of us rejected God and we do deserve His punishment. Now, the problem that the friends made was that they said, this situation is because of some particular sin. I'm not saying that, but we have actually turned our backs on God, all of us, and we do deserve His punishment. And yet I've said things like this, that, that God does love us. That says in the Bible, He keeps a record of every tear. And He's done something about it. He's taken the punishment that we deserve by dying on the cross. Jesus made it possible for us to be forgiven and to be part of a future world where he will fix all suffering and so God will, will one day make all things right and good again forever. So that the wrongs of this world become just a blip on the eternal timeline of restoration. And I've said that he offers that to you if you've got a problem with, with, with the injustice of, of, of things and, and the pain, except his offer of a world without pain. God is so much better than fair, he's generous, he's gracious. Lastly, I've also said things like this, that God has, God has reasons for everything he does. Chief among them, to bring glory to his name. That's a big part of, of exactly what he's achieving through this whole plan of salvation. Now, there's a lot of ideas in that, and we could spend a week on all of them. And I really do think it's the most satisfying account of the problem of pain you'll find anywhere in the world. But the problem is, I've, I've preached those things and then tied a bow on it and said, there you go, done. As though I've answered every question, but I haven't, have I? 
when everything's been said, there's still so many questions. Why this thing? Did that one really have to happen? You see, we can't explain the pain away. And so we come to Job's approach. Number three, here it is. It's to hold on to what you know and stay confused. Job refuses to deny what he knows is true. Amidst the real pain and the anger of his lament, somehow Job is still a believer who refuses to deny either that God is good and fair or that what is happening to him is not good and not fair. He holds on to them both, even though he does not know how they fit together. And he refuses to abandon God or explain it away. He defiantly just stays confused. Now, what makes me think that's the right approach? Because actually, as you read through Job, both Job and his friends at times say things that aren't true. Mixed together with lots of things that are true. It's all very confusing, isn't it? Have you found that as you've read Job? That's, that's actually the genre of the book. It's, the genre of the book is wisdom. It's, it's almost like a puzzle. You're supposed to think over it, puzzle over it. And within the book, you get given the clues that you need. And so let me show you why I think Job's approach is not perfect but it is right. First of all, let me show you it's not perfect. Like all good books, the ending has spoilers. I'm pretty tired today. I was up till 1.30 reading a murder novel and I couldn't couldn't stop reading it because I wanted to know how it finished. Has anyone read The Patient's Secret? You got to read it. Very, very good book. Like all good books, the book of Job, the, the ending has all the answers. So spoiler alert, come to chapter 38. I should have said that while I was rambling about the book that I read last night. I didn't read the whole book last night, but I couldn't stand. (laughs) Tell me when you're at chapter 38. See, all the way through Job, Job is saying, God, answer me, answer me. Chapter 38, he does. He finally speaks to Job and his first words are, verse 2, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Words without knowledge. It's it's a rebuke of Job. Chapter 40, verse 8. God says that Job was wrong to discredit his justice. Now you can see through the speeches that we haven't gone through tonight, but if you were to keep reading, what happens is Job's frustration just grows and grows. And so he says stronger and stronger things about God doing him wrong. Meanwhile, what also seems to grow is his sense of his own goodness. Just gets hardened into these, this position. And so God says, you were wrong to condemn me. And so in chapter 42, verse 6, Job replies, I repent. There are times in these speeches where Job goes too far. We can bring our, our questions and our feelings to God. We really can. But we must never forget that it's God we're bringing them to. There's a warning there, isn't it? The long road of suffering, it can wear you down. Don't sin in your anger. And yet, do you know what's even more extraordinary? Despite that, out of all the people in the book of Job, it's Job that God is pleased with. Look at 42 verse 7. 
After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, one of Job's friends, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me. Listen to this. As my servant Job has. God's not pleased with the friends, but he is pleased with Job. Does that surprise you? Does it comfort you? In fact, look how the Bible describes him in James chapter 5, verse 11. You have heard of Job's perseverance. Is that what you would have called it? That struggle, all those doubts, the confusion, the anger? The Bible says that's, that's perseverance. That's what faith looks like. And so, yes, there are dangers to be aware of. But Job's approach is the right one. Stay confused. Refuse to let go of either thing. God is fair and this thing that's happening is not. Now, why is that the right approach? Let me give you two reasons. Number one, it's right because of how little we know. One of the big points of Job is to show, actually, just how tiny human knowledge is. That's, that's how the book ends. We're already in the end. So come to chapter 38. Have a look at verse 4. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. We get a tour of the mysteries of creation, verse 18, have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. It's a good point, isn't it? I'm told that we're not actually sure how Panadol works. We have ideas, but none of them seem to quite explain it. There's just so much we don't know about this world, let alone the God who made it. We, we think we know a lot, but we actually know so very little, especially about God and his plans. And that's what you see at the start of the book, chapter 1. As readers, we, we eavesdrop in on a conversation that's happening in, in heaven. And there's a reason, a, a background to why this is happening. And from then on, as you read, you know something that Job and his friends don't know. Which means every conversation, every chapter, just reinforces this point over and over. There are just things going on in the heavenly realm, the, the plans and the purposes of God, that, that we just never could possibly guess from down here. And so to stay confused is actually humble. A way of saying, yeah, there's a lot I don't know. I do know that God is good and fair and I do know that what's happening is not right. But gee, there's a lot I don't know. And that's okay. I mean, it's frustrating. But it's expected. Because I'm just a human and we know so very little. And that's actually the problem with the argument. You know, I mentioned before this argument, some who reject God uh, give this. If God is all-powerful, he can stop the pain. If God is good, he would want to. There's actually a step missing in the argument. You see, it assumes that we know everything. The argument depends on point three. There are no good reasons or answers unless I can think of them. 
Do you see? It assumes that we know God couldn't possibly have a good reason. There couldn't possibly be some future resolution that would make it all worthwhile. There's not some other piece of the puzzle that... that It assumes we know everything, but we don't, do we? In fact, that's what the argument really shows. Here's what it shows. God is all-powerful, so he could stop all the pain. If God is good, he'd want to. And so, gee, there must be a lot I don't know. There's the first reason to stay confused, because of how little we know. But here's the second one. Because it leads to hope. A very strange thing happens to Job. I wonder if you noticed it. In the middle of his anger, this strange thing keeps bubbling to the surface. Have a look. Chapter 13, verse 18. Now that I have prepared my case, I know I will be vindicated. Where does that come from? Again in chapter 14, he starts with no hope. Verse 10, a man dies and is laid low, he breathes his last and is no more. It might be the emotion talking, but it it doesn't seem that Job believes in a life after this one. You can have a look later at uh, chapter 7, verse 9, chapter 10, verse 21. But here he says, "If, if you die, that's the end. He sounds very hopeless. But as he keeps wrestling, look at verse 14. All the days of my hard service, I will wait for the renewal to come. What a change of tone. He finds this hope growing in him, some sort of confidence about the future. There'll be a renewal to come. Now, where does that come from? It's what happens when you smash together these two ideas. This isn't fair, what's happening. But God is fair. There must be more to the story. That's the only way to make sense of it. It's like reading a good book, maybe like a murder mystery. And the investigation is underway. And imagine the story just suddenly ends. You'd email Amazon. There's a problem with my Kindle order. There must be more to this story. Maybe there's a sequel. You know, No author would leave a book here. That's how the confusion of suffering leads you to hope. Now, it's not a blank check, right? This is not a guarantee that it'll have the ending that you would have written. But as you hold to the things you know to be true, God is fair and good, but this is not, they smash together and produce hope. The story's not over. That's the only possible explanation. Watch it happen again in chapter 19. You can pick it up in verse 22. He's still frustrated there with God. God seems to be pursuing him unfairly. And so in verses 23 and 24, he starts to to long for a future when he'll be vindicated. You see, he's worried that um, he might die. And then after his death, his his frenemies, his friend enemies would, um, they'd say, see, we were right. At last, God's justice has come upon him. And so he, he wants to um, 
to have his words, his defense, engraved in rock. So that even after he's gone, it'll declare his innocence beyond the grave. And yet as he thinks about that, he realizes that's not enough to make it right, is it? And it drives him to an even greater hope, verse 25. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. Do you see it? Staying confused, not letting go of what he knows, leads him again to hope. Now there's three parts to this hope here. Number one, my Redeemer lives. Back then that was like someone like a relative. Their job was to stand up for you. So um, if you remember in the book of Ruth, Boaz was a Redeemer. Their job was to look after your family if, if you couldn't for some reason. Maybe to safeguard your property or your inheritance. If you were murdered to make sure that they got punished. Job says, I've got a Redeemer. How does he know that? Because God's fair. And he's blameless. I know God will come through. I know he'll stand up for me. And that's the second part of verse 25. He will stand on the earth. Number two. Far better than a rock. God Almighty will stand in the witness box for Job and declare him innocent. Thirdly, Job says, I'll see him with my own eyes. I'll see it with my own eyes. This won't just happen sometime long after I'm gone. gone. No, I'm going to be involved in this. And in fact, I'll see God again, my friend. My relationship with him will be restored despite everything. Job longs for God as his friend. Now, is he talking about life after death there? Verse 26. It sounds like it. So maybe it's possible. Actually, if you read the book of Job itself, this vindication seems to happen before he dies. His skin has already been destroyed, verse, uh, chapter 2, by sickness, by the sores, remember? And so after that happens, he will see God, he does see God at the end. We've, we've already seen that, God vindicates him. And actually God restores everything he has twice over, everything he lost. And so maybe this verse isn't talking about life after death. Maybe Job didn't have a hope of a resurrection, but he did have a hope. And if he's not talking about life beyond the grave, it's definitely the case that the Holy Spirit, who caused these words to be written, spoke of bigger things than Job could ever have imagined. Because now that Jesus has come, we know more. We know more than Job did. Our Redeemer lives quite literally he was raised to life and so will we be our flesh our bodies will be raised and in our flesh we will see God so there's how Job's confusion leads to hope now is it just wishful thinking is what I'm saying just wishful thinking you know am I just saying it doesn't feel good if it's just this, so there, there must be more. No, I don't think it's the same as wishful thinking. Let me give you two reasons. Number one, it's not built on wishes. It's built on things that you know are true. It's built on truth. God is good. We know that. This isn't fair. We know that. But secondly, it's not just wishful thinking because of Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection proved 
in the concrete events of history that there is more to the story. Recently, my daughter um, painted this mug that she bought, well, we bought for her at Bunnings. She's four, she's not buying too much for herself. Although Jono's kid bought something using his Amazon Echo. Anyway, she's painting this, this teacup. Um, she's painting this teacup and um, she's so proud of it. After dinner, she washes it up herself, dries it, and she goes to, to carefully put it away in the cupboard so that it'll be safe, and she drops it. Oh, it broke. It was so sad. She was, she was distraught. And there it is on the floor in two jagged pieces. And I pick one up. And I think to myself, that's the book of Job. It's one half of the picture crying out for the other half. It's the question. It's the question of our world. The, the, the suffering, the innocent suffering doesn't make sense. And then I pick up the other half and it fits it perfectly. And I super glued it for her. Now, she probably can't drink out of it, but I wanted her to know I love her, so I super glued it for her. The other half that fits so perfectly, that's Jesus. See, the book of Job is crying out for its other half. And then in Jesus, you get the answer. Not the explanation, a different kind of answer. You get another innocent sufferer, truly innocent. The best human being who's ever lived, who always obeyed his father's will. Love personified. And yet he suffers more than anyone ever has. God himself stepped into the world and onto a cross. And as you see him hanging there, you see this is not a game for God. He's committed to this world and he has personally felt the effects of the wrong in the world. Because of his love, he would not abandon us to the punishment of our sins. And so he wore it himself. But not only in his love, because of his justice. Did you catch that in the reading from Romans chapter 3, verse 26? God did it to demonstrate his righteousness, his goodness. So that he could be both just, fair... And the one who justifies, the one who makes us innocent. You see, some people think that God should just forgive. But that's not fair. By definition, forgiveness is not giving someone what they deserve. Fair is giving people what they deserve. You can't just forgive and it be fair. At the cross... God made sure that the punishment was paid by taking it on himself so that he can forgive us without pretending it didn't happen. Do you see that the cross was the proof of God's love? Yes. But also the proof of his fairness, his justice. God would rather die than do what is not fair. And so at the cross... God provided the way to satisfy the demands of what would be fair and yet also to offer us something better than fair. Forgiveness to us who need it so much. But that's not the end of the story. Because God the Father stood by his son's grave and acted as his redeemer, vindicating him by raising him from the dead, that historical event that shook our world proves that death is not the end 
and that Jesus is Lord and he will, as he said, come back to judge the world, to bring the great day of justice when everything that's unfair will end and every wrong will be put right and the world will be remade the way it was supposed to be. And in this period now, he's, he's thrown out the invitation. Do you want to be part of that? Come to me, he says. Trust in me. Follow me. Let me be your redeemer. And for all who accept his offer, he will stand by your grave and raise you to life again. And in your flesh, you will see God. On judgment day, he will vindicate you innocent. Not because you're perfect but because of his great forgiveness and grace. And there will be a future so glorious that every hurt of this world will be more than restored, more than repaid a million times over. Now, that's not an explanation for, for the pain, but it's hope, isn't it? And so what do we do with the confusion of our suffering? Let Job encourage you tonight not to reject God, not to explain it away, but to stay confused. I'm not telling you to just have faith. I'm not saying just shut your eyes, don't ask too many questions. That's what people say the Bible says. But actually what I've said I think is the exact opposite. I've said look the evidence squarely in the face and reason from it. Look at the evidence of a broken world and see an unfinished story. Look at the evidence of a God who has to be good. The beauty of the world, the, the wisdom of the laws of nature, the water cycle, photosynthesis. Look at the evidence of the cross and the resurrection. Don't shut your eyes to the evidence. Take it very seriously. Refuse to let even one piece fall to the ground. And if you'll do, you'll find that only one answer makes sense. The other half of the cup. Jesus. Let it all drive you to hope. That's what Horatio Spofford did. Spafford. As his boat sailed through the area where the bodies of his four daughters rested on the seafloor below, he wrote a poem. A poem that was honest about the sorrows that roll like the waves of the sea and yet also held to what God has told us in his word. Let me read it to you. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. The band's going to come up and we're actually going to sing that song. Take a moment to reflect, to pray even, to wrestle with God, to bring your confusion to him. I'll pray and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, we 
We're so confused so often. And yet we know you are good and fair. Come, Lord Jesus. Bring justice. And thank you so much for the justice you brought on the cross. Help us to cling to the cross and have hope. In Jesus' name, amen.